0: We're going through um, the idea of Absalom and we're talking about a unrighteous revolution. Now let's, let's, you know, quick review. Is there a righteous revolution? It can't be a righteous revolution. Why? Because a revolution in and of its nature is pure revolt against authorities. Why is that bad? God appoints authorities, right? God gives you your governing authorities. God gives you your pastoral authorities. God gives you your family authorities. You don't get to pick those. You know what I'm saying? Now, we live in a culture now where it's like the church shop culture, which is I mean, that's odd. That's weird now that the church shop culture exists. People go around and they, they find a church that meets their particular religious desires and then they join that particular church so that they can have. I don't know, a flower ministry. That's a thing. Or uh, um, a certain style of worship on Sunday mornings. Or, uh, But back in the Gap, whenever the church was you know, just being born, there was a church and that was the one you went to. Um, which is also why uh, the church in Ephesus um, dealt directly with the issues of racism and separation based on race and all those different things because the the city of of, of Ephesus, excuse me, the city of the Ephesians, was actually built into little microcosms. Um, You had this particular ethnicity lived over here, this particular ethnicity lives over here, this particular one lived over here. That sounds a lot like what? It sounds a lot like segregation. Well, yeah, that's true, but it also sounds a lot like New York City, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like all the major cities, right? Like all the major cities, they have they have districts. This is, this is where all the Greeks live. This is where all the Chinese folks live. This is where all the Italians live, you know. And there's a little bit of overlap, but Ephesus worked the same way back in the Gap. I'm sorry. Uh, Ephesus worked the same way back in the Gap, uh, but whenever the church showed up, since there was one church, all these people went to one church, and that's where you get phrases like breaking down the dividing walls of hostility. That's where that whole concept comes from. Because that was specifically pertaining to the Church of Ephesus and how they dealt through all that stuff. So, yes, sir. <laughs> Got it, man. No bass guitar. Uh, David, you want to play the bass? That's a joke. <laughs> That's okay. We'll make it work. Anyway, uh, so y'all y'all kind of see that. So there's the the idea, the the general tone that we're. We're moving towards, there's a unity that happens inside of the local church rather than a, a division, a separation, and back in the day when there was one church, that was a much easier thing to, for people to understand. You had, your, you had your, the church that was in your town, and everybody went to that church because it was, it was the church in town. And that's why um, if you look at early cities that were founded in the United States you know, in the 1700s, um, they are centered around what? um, geographically, architecturally, the center of the town is the church, right? Now if you go to the hyper-progressive towns in the northeast part of the country, they don't call them the church anymore, they call them the meeting hall. (laughs) You know, because there's not many Christians there anymore. But the original design was that you had the the church and then everything funneled out from there. The church was the, the center of the spoke. Now in our culture today that's a little bit different because we have 45 different churches for every person's flavor. But the general gist, what we need to get understanding of here is that that's a new problem. Okay, That's a very new problem for us to be dealing with as God's people. And we need to figure out how to navigate it well because I think that's only going to increase um, over the years to come. And I think that there will be some degree of um, consolidation rather than separation of Jesus' church at large over the next Hundred years, two hundred years, throughout the world, and I think that'll be good. Um, but there's a lot of things that have to happen beforehand, and one of them is the dealing with the Absalom spirit, the revolutionary spirit. Uh, now, why did Absalom uh, pursue power? Why did Why did he do that? Why did he, Why did Absalom want authority? Because Because he wanted to be king. Because he wanted to be in control. Right? It, it wasn't that he was necessarily pursuing this for any righteous reason. He, he just wanted, hey, I want, I want the authority, I want the power, I want the control, I'm going to recruit people to be on my particular team. Um, so there is no such thing if we're just talking about a rebellion against authority, there is no such thing as a righteous revolution. Now let's say that there is um, something that you need to deal with with your authorities. What are some of the mechanisms that we can utilize as God's people to deal with issues with our authorities? Either, whether they be pastors or elected officials or parents. What, what are some of the things that, that the Lord has given us? <laughs> he has given us silence. <laughs> no, Come on, this is easy. What, how, do you, how do you appeal to an authority? What do you do? You, you, you talk to him about it, you would be like, hey there's a problem. You can deal with them directly. Um, hey, I think that something that's going on here is a problem. Can I ask you some questions about it? Can we, can we talk through this a little bit? I think that's good. Um, do you recruit a group of people to be on your team and then go talk to the authority? No, that's the wrong way. You go, you go deal with the, the particular, particular authority person first. Um, what, what are some other mechanisms? Let's think government. What's some mechanisms to deal with uh, a potential wicked ruler inside of, inside of the governing sphere? Your votes, yeah? You can vote them out. What if you don't find out that they're bad until they're already in office? You can do a recall, right? You can, you can get them out through different mechanisms. Um, what's some other things? Impeach. I don't know that impeachment actually does anything. Does impeachment do anything? David, does impeachment do anything? Like, it in the Senate, Has anything ever happened with any president that's been impeached? No. There's been a few federal judges that have been taken out. Thank you, Stephen. I I appreciate that. So something has actually happened at some point from someone. The impeachment. Correct me if I'm wrong. Impeachment is the removal of their immunity from prosecution. Is that correct? No. So when it moves to the Senate, that's whenever the actual trial happens. Yeah. So we've had impeachment on the Congress side, but never kicked to the Senate for the actual trial. Uh, it, get, it got kicked to the Senate twice, most recently, uh, twice with Trump, but he didn't, they didn't get two thirds. They need two third vote conviction. They're I understand. I understand. I understand. So the, you know checks and balances. Okay. Well, I guess that's good. Okay. So we've got processes in the political sphere. What if there's an issue with a, with a, a leader inside of a household? How do we deal with that? Vote him out. <laughs> well, you can't do that. <laughs> but what do you do? What if uh, what if what if you got a problem with a leader inside of a household? You go to him first, right? Yeah, first you go to them, be like, "Hey, uh, we teach our kids this. Um, hey, kids, if you if you've got a problem with something that Dad's got going on, you you make your case. You bring a case. Um, and and our kids do that. You know, our kids will be like, and it's really funny because uh, Cindy Grace. My second mourn says it in a very official way. She's like, "Father, I have a case," and I'm like, "Okay, honey, let's go. You know, let's let's talk about it." And she she lays it out, you know. And sometimes she's right, and sometimes she's not, uh, but that's fine. You know, they they have an opportunity. They have an appeal to authority. Um, what if you do that? What if you go to your authority, maybe in a family, um, or in a, uh, a pastoral setting, and they They just are like, no, I don't, I think your claims are wrong. And you're like, but I think that your claim, I think my claim might be right. Um, What's your calling to do then? Huh? You need, yeah. So now we should clarify that, right? You should have witnesses, but what's a witness? They've got firsthand information, right? That's a witness. A witness has firsthand information. It's not somebody that you talk to after the fact and now they agree with you, even though they don't have the actual information. Do, are y'all following? Y'all, y'all track on that? That's, that's an important piece. Because really, if all they had to do was go talk to more people and get them to go to the meeting with them, now just, that's just recruitment and gossip, right? And that's basically what, what Absalom did, right? If you saw Absalom's life... He talked to all these people as these recruiting away from King David and he just got them all on his team. Even though they had no direct interactions with King David, they just had Absalom as their voice. Because what did he say to them? People would go see Absalom and he would say, oh, sorry, the king doesn't have time for you. Acting as the king's representative. And those people were like, the king doesn't have time for me. And then Absalom was like, oh, if only I were in charge here. I could help and make all your problems go away. See, that's that gossip recruitment kind of style of things. That's not that's not evidence, that's not firsthand witnesses, that's not any of those things. So if you've got something going on with your with your I would say your head of household or your pastoral authority or somebody in the elder board, you need you want witnesses to go with you. So you go directly to them first. This is all standard Matthew 18 stuff. And if they deal with it, then great. And if they don't, then you bring witnesses, actual witnesses, okay? <coughs> Now what do you do if you don't have actual witnesses? Nothing. You're done. Right? The process is over. Um, now, I think I'm getting... Hey, Tev, can you pull my preamp down a little bit and push the slider up because I think I'm getting a little ring. Uh, you're, you're done. The process is over because, you know, in this particular instance, the Lord has not given you these witnesses. Uh, but there are more things like physical evidence can be a form of witness. I think you're stealing, Okay. Okay, well, I'm not stealing. Okay, well, I have these bank statements that say that you're stealing, (laughs) you know? Like, physical evidence is a form of witness. Y'all see that? Um, I think you have uh, had an affair with someone. I have not had an affair with someone. Well, these videotapes show you, you get what I'm saying? Like, okay, see, that's a form of witness. Physical evidence is a form of witness, Um, transcripts or form of witness, you know, all those different kinds of things. So just because we say witness necessarily, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be another physical person that actually saw it happen. Because sometimes that's just not possible. But if you don't have evidence, okay, evidence is a form of witness, and if you don't have somebody else with you, then the Lord has just not given this opportunity for this person to be dealt with just yet. Okay? If assuming that their sin is really sin. Um, And if that's the case, okay. Now, I know the immediate reaction that most people have is, but preacher, that means that people are going to get away with some stuff. I know. Yeah. I got it. But we, I think, would rather have a justice system that erred on the side of maybe some people are going to get away with some stuff and we just pay better attention in the future than have a justice system that condemns the innocent. Yeah. Right? Like that's We would prefer, we would prefer that. Um, and the, we can also just trust the Lord, because what does the Lord say about your sin? He says, it will find you out. Yep. It, and we, we have lived by personal experience enough, especially in recent years, um, both within our church and outside of it, to know it really will. <laughs> you're not going to get away with it. Your sin will find you out. Whether the Holy, if you're the Lord's and the Holy Spirit just crushes you with conviction and you have to confess, or whether it loops into the public sphere or into the police department or whatever, your your sin will find you out. So we can trust that as the Lord's people. Does that make sense? Is everybody tracking with me? Great. Okay. Good. So we don't want to be revolutionaries. We want to follow the order that the Lord has given us in our appeals to authority and in in the way that we govern ourselves, both in the civil sphere and in the family sphere and inside of the church sphere. All those things are important. But at the same time, we also want to be as Absalom-proof as we can be. Okay, So I've been in some capacity of vocational ministry for almost 20 years. all right. Um, In full-time work, probably around 12. Does Westminster count as full-time? Because if we count that as full-time it would be more like 16. Um, I don't know if we count that though. So I've I've done it for a, a while. And I have seen inside of my church settings many Absalom types come and go. Um, folks who want to desire influence for themselves, they gather that influence to themselves. They attempt uh, a coup, a revolt, as they have recruited people to their sides. And I mean, honestly, like, if you guys have been a part of any church at any point in your lives, you've probably seen this happen too. If you've been a part of, I'm, I have, the statistics are staggering for the amount of church splits that happen inside of Baptist and Presbyterian churches. Like, it's wild. They fight like champions. <laughs> Like they really do. Conservative Christian churches, this is a a repeated problem. So it's important for us as Jesus' church to to make ourselves as Absalom proof as we possibly can. And so that's kind of the design of this particular course. We don't want to be revolutionaries, of course, but we also want to proof ourselves against revolutionaries as much as we possibly can um, and be wise in doing so. So 2 Samuel chapter 15, Let's just go through a, a couple of reviews here in this particular area. I want you to, as we read through 2 Samuel 15, I want you to keep your mind's eye open to the idea of red flags. What are, we, what are some signs of an Absalom? What are some signs of a revolutionary? Put these away in your brain as we kind of go through it here. 2 Samuel, ooh, excuse me, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call him and say, "'From what city are you?' And when he said, "'Your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel,' Absalom would say to him, "'See, your claims are good and right, "'but there's no man designated by the king to hear you.'" Then Absalom would say, "'Oh, that I were judge in the land,' "'then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me.'" And I would give him justice. That's the big, all right, we'll come back to that. All right, here we go, verse five. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. All right, red flags, where do you see? What are some Absalom red flags that we can notice immediately? All of them. <laughs> Which? Give me one. Hit me with one. If I were in charge here, I would, I would never... So he's immediately setting himself against the ruler, right? He's immediately creating a dichotomy between what he would do and what the current ruler would do. And we, we do that. We just say it a different way. I, we would say, oh, man, I wouldn't have done that. Very casual, very light, but it's the same principle, isn't it? Woo! I mean, I, whew, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done it that way. Yikes! Um, that's an armchair quarterback. You know, that's uh, my sports analogy. So I might be misusing it, but I think that's an armchair quarterback. Yeah, it is. Okay, great. It means somebody who's just hanging back and not actually involved in the game, but they think they can call the plays better. Okay, that's an armchair quarterback. What what else? What else do you see, Jesse? He's placed himself. He put himself in a position of of influence, right? He didn't receive the position of influence. The king didn't put him in the position of influence. He, hey guys, Mm -hmm. right? And not only by putting himself at the gate, but what's another way that he did that? Not only did he give himself a position of influence, but he also gave himself the perception of influence by what? He meets the people when they get there. He, He cuts them off, right? He's like, hey, 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 what you doing? Hey, buddy, hey, what you doing? You, uh, oh, you're going to meet with the king? He's too busy for you today. Can't meet. Sorry. He's intentionally running interference against those who would go and gather an audience with the king. Um, anything else? Kelly? Apparently not. He's a self appointed. Yeah. Well, so he's a prince, right? And so the understanding is that he's probably living off of David. Okay. So <laughs> he's on welfare. He's got a government check. Okay. He ain't got a job. And he's he's pulling uh, as much uh, influence as he possibly can. This this his deception is his full time job. So yeah, not really. He ain't employed. Good catch. Any other red flags? <laughs> and then they, yeah, any man that tries that's going to get a red flag. Well, I mean maybe that's what we call it. Uh, can you see anything else there? There's some more stuff here that's actually really fun, Dave. Right. But what makes him look qualified? He's, a he's tall, tall str- beautiful, he's attractive. <laughs> That's true, but, he, but what else, though? What else makes him appear as he's qualified? He's, he's, charming. He, he's charming, he's got a good personality. Yeah, so bad. he makes people feel socially comfortable with him whenever they talk to him. Yeah, okay, can you see anything else? Uh, no, it was, um, and it's interesting because it wasn't Solomon either. It was somebody else. Oh, I can't remember, but it wasn't Absalom and it wasn't Solomon. There was another guy, but line, I don't think they really worked with lines like that as much. You know, like there was this, a lot of intentionally blessings going to the younger, they moved different things around. So, um, okay. What else? What about the chariots and the men that ran in front of them? That gave him a big air of importance, right? It gave a show, didn't it? He had this huge chariot that he would ride to the gate of the king, and 50 people ran in front of him. And they were, dec- you know, it doesn't say this, but the purpose of them running in front of them, they're like heralds. They're like shouting, Absalom's coming! Absalom's coming! It gave this appearance of importance, okay? But he wasn't actually important. He, he didn't have a role. He appointed himself. Right? Do y'all see that? Um, Scroll down, look at verse uh, verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What's that? Do you think that Absalom is really going to give justice to every single man that comes up to him? Of course not. So what is that? That's a lie, or as I would call it, a campaign speech, right? That's, he's politicking. Oh, if I were in charge, I would forgive, I would forgive your student loans. <laughs> That's right. And then they get in office, and they're like, oh, my bad. We can't actually do that can't actually do that. Such a weird world we live in. <laughs> they called me the other day, and they were like, hey, did you know that if you consolidate your loans into this off-whatever student loans, into this off-category thing, then you might be eligible to have your student loans forgiven. And at first I was like, man, that sounds like a great idea. And now I'm like, wait, what does that mean to consolidate and move it somewhere else? Oh, into a private bank. Oh. Oh no, we're not going to do that right now. That's a different animal entirely. So for, the, for the promise of a potential degree of uh, debt forgiveness. That was an interesting moment. And can, you, can you see anything else? Can you see anything else? He can't execute justice that way. That's a false promise. He would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. One of the biggest things here is who are, who are his target? Who are the people that he's chasing? Olivia? Well, not just the people who live in the city, because uh, it's people from around the nation that are coming through to go see the king. Because remember, he was like, Where are you from? Oh, I'm from such and such a place. Like they were from around Israel. But I like the way your head works. Can you think of anything else? What, who's he going after? He's going after desperate people. He's going after hurt people. He's going after the proletariat, the the victim class, right? And he, because those folks are soft targets, okay? Those who have been hurt by someone else, that's a soft target to be picked up and dragged along with you. And he knows that. And so that's the one he chases. And he chases them with a promise of what? Justice. If you were with me, this would never... Who does that sound... That, that is the Marxist-Socialist strategy. <laughs> ah, hello. Or, or the ambulance chaser strategy. Yeah, that too. Um, oh, you poor, weak people. Right? Oh, you've been hurt. If I were in charge, no one would ever hurt you again. You see, you see that? that is a, that's a master manipulator. So heads up, people, when you're low, or if you consider yourself like a victim all the time, or if you consider yourself beat up all the time, or anything like that, heads up, you're a soft target. You're a soft target. Somebody can, somebody can get you faster. They can, they can attract you faster. and It's like a, like a bee to honey, or whatever you want to call it. Bear to honey, there it is. All right, anything else? How does David look in all that? How's David looking right now? Not great, right? David's looking not great. Not that David, David from the Bible. That David looks great. So that's true. Why? Why does he not look great right now? Because he's not around. He's gone. Where the heck is King David? He's not paying attention. Why? Probably because he's tied up with harlots right? and his, you know, 100 different wives or something like that. He's distracted. He's not doing his job. Absalom is running through the streets of Jerusalem. Every day, with a chariot and 50 heralds shouting, Absalom is here! And going to the gate. And David's like, no, i got more important things to do. His kingdom is being stolen out from underneath him, and he's not doing anything about it. Part of the reason that David got himself into this mess is because David abdicated from his job. He looks distant, he looks uncaring, probably because he is. And he's the last to ever actually hear any of the problems that are being dealt with. Now, character assassination throughout church history has always happened. Always happened. Okay, And that's what this is. This is assassination of David's character by implication by Absalom. Oh, the king doesn't have any time for you. King's busy. Now, David's got his own problems. That's very true. But Absalom's cutting them off. Now, if you look back through church history and you go read the stories of men like John Calvin, if you go read the stories of men like Martin Luther, these like big, dynamic church leaders, if you go read stories, biographies about Charles Spurgeon, um, uh, oh, his name escapes me now, the preacher who preached open air in the United States, Whitfield, thank you. Yes, Whitfield, who was famous for preaching to like 35,000 people. They were all victims of character assassination. People would always go after them. Why? Why are leaders always victims of character assassination? Why? Because people want to be in charge. Folks want the power. Somebody who is actually a leader, um, nine times out of ten... Maybe not nine times out of 10, maybe seven times out of 10, that job gives them crushing anxiety. John Calvin died when he was 55 because his job was so stressful. Charles Spurgeon died of like ulcers and problems, gout in his feet and all kinds of issues, and literally suffered depression and panic attacks about the people in his congregation. Like, dead serious. Like These leaders that you read about in church history, John Calvin showed up to a meeting um, one time, and he was so famously malnourished and unrested that by the time that he was near the end of his life, the dude looked like skin and bones. He showed up to a meeting of his accusers, and he took his robe off, basically saying like, and he's frail, old, skin and bones, like 53, 54 years old before he died, and he's basically saying, come at me, here I am, pierce me if you want to let's go. like These guys, these huge dynamic leaders that you read about in church history, you, you picture them like swole bros and like huge theonomic titans. Man, it was, it's hard work to be a leader because of the accusations, because that always comes with it, because folks want power and authority, but they don't recognize the enormous cost that goes with it. That's typically the reason why. Yes, Olivia? You know, I don't know, dearie. I think that David was pretty distracted while all of this was going on. And so I don't know that he would have. But we kind of, that's one of those things that we don't quite know. It's just kind of floating out there. He was pretty distracted by a lot of his own personal sins that he decided to pursue rather than take care of his job, which was to rule the kingdom. And so maybe they would have been heard. Maybe some of them would have been heard. Uh, but probably not all of them. I would be my guess. But that's just guesses. You know, that's just guesses. So was probably taking advantage of a vacancy. there was a vacuum of leadership. Mm. Yeah, anytime there's a vacuum of leadership, you're going to deal with things like that. <clears throat> now, Absalom goes after David's reputation primarily first. And why would that be the first target? Why would, why would David's reputation be the first target? Because it's, it's a lot easier than entering into a formal debate, right? If you go into a formal debate against somebody, they can beat you <laughs> and embarrass you in a public sphere. But if you just launch rocks from a distance, and have an audience while you launch rocks from a distance. You can diminish someone's reputation and influence without actually having to take a big risk yourself. Are, does that make sense? And so that's what Absalom does. He throws rocks from a distance rather than engage directly um, with the person who is uh, who, with the person that he has issue with. So he's attacking David's reputation to cut away Absalom uh, to cut away King David's <coughs> his reputation, his influence, and his power. Now, we should, as God's people, take to heart some lessons from that. First off, our reputations do matter. The Bible talks about that a lot. That generally speaking, Christians should have a good reputation in their community. um, In their community internally within the church, yes. And you know, to a degree outside the church. Now obviously if everyone outside of the church is a demonic Satan worshiper, and you tell them to stop it, you probably won't have a great reputation, you know. But at least they should know us for our good works and the way that we care for folks. But that means for us as God's people that one of the things that we should do is work to protect the reputation of our brothers. So when character assassins show up, we rebuke them. Now some folks might just have old bad habits, right? Like gossip can just be, especially in the deep south, Gossip, scuttlebutt, slander, that can just be an old bad habit that you have always done with your mom and them whenever y'all get together. That's just normal. You, you get what I'm saying? We, we have it like ingrained culturally within us. And so whenever we gossip, scuttlebutt, slander about somebody, we, we may not even feel it, the words, leaving our mouths. We just might, it might just happen. But we should, as a general disposition, as God's people, have our guard up over our tongue, over the words that we say, and for the reputation of our brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? If somebody's bringing up an accusation against somebody that you know or, or something along those lines, it would be perfectly right for you to say something like, hey, hey, they're not here. I don't want to do that. I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to go into this. We need to, let's, let's not. I want to I be a, a guard, a protector of my brother's reputation. If you've got a problem with them specifically, you need to go talk to them. You need to go deal with them about it, not me. Because I don't even know what you're talking about. Does that make sense, you guys? Now, that's, that's hard because it is, the, it is the water that we swim in. You know, like, we... I don't know why that is for some reason. Maybe it's a human thing. I, I attribute it to a Deep South culture. But a Deep South culture talks about people. Do you all know what I'm... Do you notice that? Do you all notice that? And so we want to, as best we possibly can... Protects reputation rather than try to knock it down, especially the reputation of those within the church. Now, if we're talking about somebody who uh, is elected to public office and sins publicly, uh, is that the same thing? No, because they have a public sin in a public office. This is a, a public deal. Okay, So that, that needs to be discussed and see how those things can kind of overlap uh, and if we've got a, uh, a church member who sins publicly, um, how do we talk about that? Let's say that we've got a church member who uh, has entered into an open, adulterous affair against their spouse, um, and they refuse to repent. Well, what do we do? Is it wrong for us to talk to one another about that specific situation? No, because it's a public sin, right? And it's happening openly. But what should we also do as well as talk about we should also talk to. Do you see the difference here? So to the degree that the sin is public is the degree that you handle it. All those things are important. But we don't want to go, did you hear what happened with so-and-so? That's a private matter. Do you all see the distinction here? There's, I notice that there's a lot of lines that we got to get clear here, so we want to make sure that we do that as best we possibly can. Anyway, <clears throat> another thing that we want to be aware of, um, and one of the things that I've seen commonly wielded against those in leadership, is the phrase... I just have concerns. You ever heard that before? Um, this this is used a lot in the corporate world. Um, I think it's used a pretty fair amount inside of the church world. Um, I I have concerns. And that's like somebody just took a blunt like baseball bat. And they're just like, what are you worried about? I just have concerns. And you're like, well, what are they? I'm just worried about you. You know, like, it's like, hold on. <laughs> I need specifics here. I need you to tell me exactly what what is the concern? Give me the details. Don't just uh, a vague concern, a a blurry potential future issue that might come up. That's not a sin. Right? That's not a sin. And it would be a problem for us to treat something that we see that might be an issue in the future as a sin. I've just got I've just got concerns. No, no. We can't do that. Now, I learned early on that as a general rule, um, I don't agree to meetings with people unless they tell me exactly what the meeting is about before we get together, because I've gotten several of those phone calls. Hey, man, can we get together and talk? I'm like, sure. What are we talking about? Ah, uh, you know, I just got some concerns, and then I don't sleep for three days before the meeting. <laughs> like, I'm just, I'm awake. And, what are they worried about? I don't know. Oh, gosh. You know, we, that can't, we can't do stuff like that. Not vague concerns. Be specific. Um, Jesus said we judge by what? How do we judge? Judge by the appearance, right? No, that's not right. Judge by the fruit. Do you remember that? Jesus said that we judge, judge with right judgment, judge by the fruit. You know, those are all those things are important. And if we're judging by the fruit... That means the fruit that's on the tree right now, not the imagined future fruit that you think might be on the tree in three years. Y'all see the difference there? Y'all have questions? I know that could require a lot of specific applications, but that's okay. All right. We want to also avoid certain types of people for leadership, and we want to place certain types of people inside of leadership. We want to avoid leaders who promote themselves by diminishing those that are in authority over them. You know, that's, that's what Absalom did, right? Absalom's trying to promote himself by taking a swing at the people that are currently in charge. We, we want to avoid that as a, a little lesson from Absalom. Rather, we want to promote people to leadership based on their merit, on their qualifications, on who they are and what they've done. Not on them saying, I could do a better job than this guy. Right? That's, that doesn't qualify you for a job. While maybe it's true that maybe you could do a better job than those guys, uh, qualify yourself based on your merit, not by disqualifying the people over you. Does that make sense? <laughs> when people are, are coming and desiring... The Bible says that somebody who would desire the office of elder desires a good thing. right? So that's good. We, we want people to aspire to the office of elder and pastor within the church. They desire a good thing. That's a good thing for them to want. But we don't appoint people to that position because they have critiques of those who are currently holding it. Right? Okay? That, that's a big that's a big difference. Rather, we appoint people to that position, and that's a big temptation for a lot of pastors. Because folks come in, and they, the squeaky wheel, always is the one that gets the grease. Folks come in, they've got complaints about the way that things are done in this church, and they've got ideas about the way that they could be done right. And a lot of pastors, and I'm pointing at myself here in this, in my early years of ministry, a lot of pastors get the temptation to say, well, I mean, you think you can do a better job? Okay, here, do it. Do a better job. Every time I've done that, those people left. (laughs) Every person that ever came up to me with complaints and I said, oh, I mean, maybe your ideas are good. Here, be in charge of this. They always leave. They don't, they're not actually there. They're not committed to the team. Why? Well, because they never learned to submit. So why on earth would they ever be able to lead? You get it? I learned that lesson in about year five. <laughs> I think it was around year five that I learned that lesson. Y'all learned that lesson. By instruction, not by experience, okay? Learn that lesson by instruction. Don't people's critiques of leaders do not qualify them to be leaders. Their merit, their proof, their worth, their their personal integrity is what qualifies them to be a leader. Does that make sense? Absalom's mechanism was to critique David and therefore qualify himself, tear down the one in charge and therefore qualify himself for the role. And that's not what we want to do either. Okay? Do y'all have any questions? Okay, great. Let's pray and I'll, we'll uh, jump, pick this back up next week. Father, thank you that you teach and instruct us according to your word. I pray that these lessons would go deep into our heart and that we would follow you all of our days. Thank you for your good words. May we hear and heed and obey them. And may we aspire to be biblical leaders uh, the way that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, in all God's people said Amen. See y'all in a few minutes.